Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah. This is from our Advent series, An Unexpected King. If you would like to know more about our church, please come check us out at cbcsavannah.com. Alrighty, good morning again. It's good to be here with you. I hope you guys are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible either with you or on your phone, you can grab one of those ones in the seat backs around you. We're going to get there in a moment. We've got a little bit of work to do before we get there. If you're a visitor with us um, or you've been out the past few weeks, we are in week three of a sermon series where we have been celebrating the season of Advent together uh, as a church. And this, se- this sermon series that we're calling Unexpected King is actually going to take us up through Christmas. And so um, for those of you who are procrastinators of which I am one, um, that means we're running out of time, okay? Christmas is getting close. Um, I read an article um, this week that said something, because Christmas is on a Tuesday, then we have less business days stacked in between that because of the way Sunday works out. Anyways, Amazon is, it will let you down if you push it to the limit this year. That's basically the point. And so you need to get on that. Um, But yeah, this sermon series is going to take us up through Christmas, and if you don't know what we mean when we say Advent, and we're celebrating the season of Advent, it's from a Latin word that means coming or an arrival, and so for Christians, what we mean when we say we're celebrating a season of Advent is that we are celebrating the coming or the arrival of Jesus, that we are celebrating the birth of of Christ, that it is the eternal Son of God. If you were here with us a couple weeks ago, we read about this eternal Son of God in Colossians chapter one, it'll be on the screen, the one who is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus, the one that we're gonna read about who was born in Matthew two, the one who came, the one who is arriving, is the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created, whether in heaven or on earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus created all things and all things were created for him and he came. So we celebrate in Advent. This Jesus, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords, he took on flesh that despite our sin and rebellion against his good and right design, he doesn't leave us on our own to figure a way out of our mess, but he comes to us. And if you were here last week, we read his name is what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. I want to read a passage of scripture for you in Philippians chapter two, it'll be on the screen. If you hear anything today, you might not think this is a Christmas text, but it is. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he didn't cling to it or hold on to it just for himself, but he was willing to do what? He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. And so in Advent, what we celebrate as the people of God is we celebrate his arrival, the one who was and is and is to come, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, a baby born to a virgin mother named Mary in Bethlehem of Judea, that we celebrate an infant son who was laid in a manger because without the manger, there is no cross. 
Without the cross, without the manger, there is no resurrection. There is no victory over sin and death. And there is no shot for us, no chance for a lasting hope or a joy or a peace that we celebrate in Advent. There's no chance for it without what happens here. And to be honest, man, we could spend every minute of this sermon just marveling together at the reality that our God is with us. That he breaks into the chaos and this destruction of this world so that you and I might be reconciled or might have a way to be brought back into right relationship with his father. But there's something specific about Advent that I want to draw our attention to this morning. And it comes from this idea as we're celebrating the coming of Jesus. There's something underneath Advent that motivates it. And it's this about our God. That our God is a God who keeps his promises. Here's what I mean. There are hundreds, hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. That for thousands of years, the people of God have built their promise, or rather built their hope, placed their hope on the promise of a Messiah, of one who would come and restore what was broken in the world. Let's hear a couple of these. In Genesis chapter three, after sin enters the world and and the curse of sin is ringing out over God's creation, God gives, even early on in the third chapter of the Bible, a hope for a Messiah, a hope for a savior. He says to the servant in verse 15, there is someone who is coming and you will bruise his heel, but he will what? Crush your head and he will be born of a woman. And then in Genesis 12, God is beginning to put together his chosen people and for whatever reason, he singles out this guy, Abram, right? He makes a covenant with Abram. And so now we find out that not only will the Messiah be born of a woman, the one who, the the conqueror, the promised king, right? Who's coming to crush the head of the serpent. Not only will he be born of a woman, but he's gonna come in the line of Abraham. This is the establishment of the people of God, the establishment of Israel. And then in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, In verse six, he says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And so our promised Messiah, this conqueror of sin and death, he will be born of a woman. He will be in the line of Abraham. And then the Bible says thousands of years before, or at least a thousand, that there will be a king. And what's crazy about this is there is no king in Israel. There's no idea of a king yet. They're still going to spend 500 years in in exile in Egypt. Then they're going to wander in the desert, but still, hey, he's going to, he's coming. He'll be born of a woman. He'll be in the line of Abraham, and he will be a king. And this thing goes on and on and on throughout all the Old Testament. Genesis 49 says our king will come from the tribe of Judah. Numbers 24 says that he will be a descendant of Jacob. Isaiah 7 says that he will be born of a virgin. Isaiah 9, we read last week, verse 6, says this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And this is huge, because the prophet Isaiah just said that he will be God. And so there is one coming, and he will conquer sin, and he will make a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, but he's not just anyone, he's God. The one who's coming is God in the flesh, and we could keep going on and on, but my point is what we're about to read in Matthew chapter two is the telling of the actual events that happened as these hundreds of prophecies were coming to fulfillment in Jesus. That the anticipation and the longing and the hope of the people of God that had been stacked on top of itself for thousands of years in these prophecies about a Messiah were coming to fulfillment. And what I want you to see in that is that our God is a God who keeps his promises. And the reality of Advent is that it should shape the way that we live our lives, every spot of it, 
that the coming of Christ Jesus changes everything, that not only are we given a way to be reconciled to God through the person and work of King Jesus, but we can see in the incarnation, in God keeping his promise, we can see something about his character and his nature, that he keeps his promises, but not just this one, about the Messiah, but rather that he keeps every promise. And so, yes, the celebration of Advent is about remembering the goodness of God for sending his son to lay his life down for us, but somehow it gets better. It gets better than a Messiah who's going to come, than Emmanuel, than God with us who came to reconcile and save the world because not only did Jesus come, but the Bible says there will be a day that he will come again. And this time he won't be a baby Revelation 21 says that he will come as the rightful king of the universe, and on that day he will make all things new. Revelation 21 verse 4 says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the promise of God. This is what it means to celebrate Advent, and it should shape everything about the way we live our lives that we live in what theologians call the already but not yet, that Jesus has already come as a baby, but he has not yet come fully as king. And we live between these two arrivals of King Jesus, and our God keeps his promises. This should shape everything about us, the way we treat our neighbors, the way we love our spouses, the way we work, the way we parent, the way that we struggle with the areas in our lives where we aren't happy. The thing that you're dealing with where you're, you're discontent and you're asking God why. We should live differently when it comes to that because of Advent. Right, the way that we give and receive gifts, the way that we open our homes and invite people into our lives because Jesus has come and he is coming again. And here's why I'm telling you all that. And this is true about every day of your life but it is particularly true in the Christmas season that we live in a culture that is seeking to sell us on something, something that will always fall short of what it promises to deliver. And here's the lie, it's everywhere right now. It's that if you want joy, if you want genuine satisfaction in this world, what you need is more or a different version of what you already have, right? What you need, if you want joy or satisfaction in this world is you need a new job. You need more uh, clothes, you need a different clothes, you need a different car, you need more money, more things, you need a different spouse, or maybe you need a spouse. Right? It's the belief, it's the lie that what I need is more or a different version of what I already have to satisfy me. And this is the fuel for a cultural Christmas, that I have to do more, that I need to have more, or even that I need to, and this might get us more, even that I need to give more things to people so that I might be accepted and loved by them. It's the lie of a cultural Christmas. I read an article this week that said a conservative estimate for spending this year in 2018 in the US alone on Christmas, when you count gifts, food, travel, decorations, a conservative estimate on that is $720 billion. The lie is everywhere that if you want joy this Christmas, you gotta buy this, you gotta give this, you need to experience this and everybody's in on it, even grocery stores. Have you seen these Publix commercials? Right, these holiday Publix, I mean, shopping there is already a pleasure, okay, we can agree. <laughs> I don't need these holiday commercials on top of that, okay? So what you get in these commercials is these scenes of these perfect families sitting around these amazingly decorated tables around this perfectly cooked dinner, right? And, and the lie there is subtle, but what is it? that if you shop at Publix this Christmas, your dinner will be everything you want it to be. 
It's subtle, but that's what they're saying, that all the holiday conflict that you normally experience, it will disappear. No one's going to mention politics this year if you shop at Publix, right? This is the lie. The kids are going to come visit you this year instead of your in-laws if you shop at Publix. It'll start snowing outside, even though we live in Savannah. (laughs) Although it happened last year, right? Wow. First time in 30 years I heard. I moved here too late, I guess. But the idea is that this year you shop at Publix, you won't burn the cookies, Right, this is the lie that's been so, what we need is more or a different version of what we already have. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go all in on Christmas or that we shouldn't shop at Publix, okay? I put lights up on my house. I promise you, my, my living room, mostly the result of my wife, but, but our living room looks like the set from a Hallmark Christmas movie, okay? I promise you that. So I'm not saying we shouldn't go all in on Christmas, but what I am saying is that we cannot afford to believe the lie that we need any of that in order to find a true and a lasting joy in this world. We can't, we can't afford to believe, to buy into even a little bit of it, whether it's from Publix or from wherever, we can't afford to believe the lie that we need anything other than Jesus to find joy and satisfaction in this world. And this is why we celebrate Advent while we remember together and look back at the first coming of Christ and we long together for his return because every single day, but especially at Christmas, there will be things and there will be people that is vying for our attention, that's calling us for our worship, but only God deserves it. And God keeps his promises. And so with that in mind, I want us to turn our attention to Matthew chapter two. And there's a lot going on here in this text. On top of that, because this is such a familiar story to us, we have a ton of misconceptions about what's actually happening. And what I said earlier, I wanna draw out for us this, what's centered around this idea of worship. And when I say worship, I don't mean what we do in here on Sunday mornings when the band is on stage. I need to clarify because oftentimes worship will include singing, it will, it should, it must. We covered this a few weeks ago. There are over 50 commands in the Bible to the people of God that we would sing, but the point I'm making this morning is that worship is not just singing. That's not all that it is. And so my goal today is as we look at Matthew 2 together that we would draw out an answer to the question, what is worship? Right, and we've already said that every single day of our lives there will be things and people vying for our attention and calling for our worship, but especially in the Christmas season, and yet only God deserves it. And so, what does a worship of God look like? Look at verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, and I need to stop there, and you feel like, oh my gosh, we're never gonna get out of here. I think Matthew puts this behold in there for a reason, right? He's wanting to draw our attention to something. This word behold, it means to look, but not just to look at, right? It means to take it in. So the difference is you, you look at your phone when you get a text message, but you behold the Grand Canyon, right? You look at a stranger in a coffee shop or someone who's walking by you on the street, but as your bride comes down the aisle to you, you behold her. It's that moment that stops and you take it in. And this is what Matthew's doing here. This is what he means. He's trying to draw our attention to something because what he just said was that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. The eternal son of God, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who we just read, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to hold for himself, but what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He came as a baby, the one who, that baby who one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord in heaven and, and, and under the heavens. Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. Matthew says he was born. Then he says, take this in. Here's what happened after. 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So right from the beginning, this story starts to go a little bit sideways, okay? All of our misconceptions start to creep in because the reality is we know very little about these guys or the star that brought them to Jerusalem. There's been a lot of people much smarter than me or you, or at least me, I can make that assessment, right, who've made educated guesses about who these people were and what this star was and why it was that these men associated that star with the Messiah. But at the end of the day, all those are just guesses because the Bible doesn't say for sure. Here's what the Bible does say, what we do know. Verse one, they were wise men from the east. And so if you have a different translation, your Bible say, may say that they're magi from the east. You probably heard them called that before. These are the magi. So all that is, magi, is a more literal translation of the original word or in the original language, and it, it's where we get our English word magic, okay? So we don't know for sure, again, but chances are these guys were some kind of magicians, some kind of sorcerers, and their practice was likely associated with astrology or with the study of stars. This is why they were looking at the sky enough to see something, and they were drawn to Jerusalem. So we know that Matthew calls them magi, and we know they're from the east. So there's a little more agreement by Bible scholars on what Matthew means by east here. Most people say that it's Persia or it's Babylon. And if it's Persia or Babylon, that means that these folks probably had a working knowledge of Old Testament prophecy, because if you know anything about Daniel or the Old Testament, that Israel spent a lot of time in exile in Persia and in Babylon. So we have these wise men who show up in Jerusalem, Okay, these magicians from Babylon. Again, this is 800 miles west of Jerusalem. And verse two says, when they get there, they start asking a question. What do they say? Where is he, the one who's been born king of the Jews? This is where I think it's helpful for us to read the Bible with a little bit of imagination. And so I don't mean that you would make stuff up that isn't in the text. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is that you would read the Bible in such a way that you would think of it, put yourself in the story so you can understand what's actually happening. For example, how is it that these foreigners show up and they're able to capture the interest and the attention of the king of Judah? Like, how do you just show up in another country? It's not that much different today. You can't just show up in the country and be like, I want to speak to the prime minister. I don't want to speak to the king. You can't do that. And so I'm not going to dig too deep into Herod because Bill is going to cover that next week. But this guy was crazy, right? You read your Bible, you read any history, you know this guy was crazy. He would kill anyone who threatened his power and somehow the Magi are asking, hey, where's the one who's born king of the Jews and Herod's paying attention? And again, because this story is so familiar, we have all these misconceptions that aren't actually in the Bible. Like nowhere in the Bible does it say there were three of them, right, nowhere. That's dri driven from this idea or derivative of the idea that they brought three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It doesn't even say that's all they brought. It just says that's what they brought, right? This is the picture we have in our head, three men, Dressed as kings, we, we three kings of Orient are. You know that song? I think we're singing that next week. Just kidding. Um, they're riding on camels. They're coming uh, east to Jerusalem, and they got these perfectly wrapped packages, right, of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Essential oil ladies just went whoop, right? This is what's happening here. This is the picture we have in our mind, at least. But what's more likely is instead of three men, it was more like 30, or 40 even, like you have this entourage of wise men and their families and their servants and their guards and animals to ride on and animals with them to, to throw their supplies on the food and the water and the tents, whatever they needed to do an 800 mile journey. And the star is leading them from the east to Jerusalem and they just start asking the question when they show up, where's he at? 
Where can we find the one who's been born king of the Jews? And it's stirring up this controversy because there's already a king of the Jews. His name's Herod. Only he wasn't born king, right? He didn't have that birthright. He was appointed king by Rome. And so Herod finds out that this group of foreigners has shown up in Jerusalem and they start asking about the Messiah. This phrase, king of the Jews, that's what it means. It means Messiah. It has these messianic undertones. That's why when you read the passion narratives in Luke and in Mark, you'll see them mocking Jesus by saying what to him? All hail, king of the Jews. You claim to be Messiah. They're throwing this mockingly at him because it had this prophetic messianic undertone with it. But the wise men are asking, hey, where is he? And then they say, why? Because we have come to worship him. This is the first thing we learn about worship here, that worship is not for a specific type of person. So if you've been with us this series, you know that our, our series has been Unexpected King of Advent, and this, the whole thing today is about these unexpected worshipers, that these are not the people that you would expect for God to draw to worship Jesus. These guys were pagan Babylonian magicians, right? Pagan Babylonian sorcerers. The prophet Isaiah would even go on to say that if there's anyone who looks to the stars or looks to the constellations to try to draw a sense of life or to get answers from it, then they are false prophets, and yet God draws them to some, or draws them to be some of the first people who worship Jesus for who he is, the Messiah. And here's the application in that. There is nothing that you can do or have done that can disqualify you from coming to God in Christ. That's what this means. There is no one type of person who has been drawn to Jesus to worship him. Some of us have it in our minds that if we didn't grow up in church or that if we don't follow the rules, then we, somehow God doesn't love us anymore. He doesn't love us as much as he would have if we would have been better, right? We live in this kind of treadmill performance that I call it where we, we do our best until we mess up and then we feel like we have to run from God until we can stack up enough good behavior in order to come back to him and go, yeah, I know I messed up, but look at this. But the reality is there is no prerequisite to following Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that it's simply not true. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. There is nothing that we could do to earn the favor of God. And right standing with God cannot be earned. It can only be received by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus. And so this should give us confidence in our own salvation, but it should also give us a boldness in God to share the hope we have in Christ with the people around us. I think that this is one of the primary reasons we don't share our faith is that we are afraid that people will think we're hypocrites. Who are you to tell me that I need a savior? Right, or that we may not feel like we don't have all the answers, but the story of Christianity is not about how great we are. It's about how great he is. The story of Christianity isn't about you having all the answers, it's about you guiding and pointing, telling someone about the one who does have all the answers. Right? And if genuine biblical worship isn't for one type of person, then we are free to share with anyone regardless of how jacked up their past may be. And even regardless of how jacked up their present might be. Because we're all in the same boat. The only way we come to Christ or come to God is through Jesus. And so worshiping God isn't for one type of person and then it's also not indifferent to his word. Look at verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod hears about these guys showing up, asking for a Messiah, and the Bible says he's troubled. That's actually not a great uh, translation of that word. I think other translations kind of grab the meaning of it more because it goes deeper than that. Other translations would say that he was terrified or that he trembled with fear. 
So this makes sense, right? Based on what I said earlier, this makes sense. Herod, had the, he'd heard these promises of God and he knows these stories. There's gonna be one who's gonna come. He's gonna be the king of the Jews. He's the promised one. So he knows these stories and he, he hears that, that this might have happened. The man might have been born and so he can feel his power and his authority slipping through his hands. He starts to panic. What's interesting is in verse three, it says that Herod wasn't the only one who was troubled. The Bible says, who else? Also, all of Jerusalem with him. That's interesting, right? Why would Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem, be worried about the coming of the Messiah? They should be rejoicing. And I think this has more to do with Herod than in how he might respond, especially when he feels threatened. Look at verse four. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he's panicking, right? He's scrambling. He starts to put together a plan. He gathers all the chief priests and scribes. These are basically the religious elite in Jerusalem. These are the people who would know the answer to the question they were asking for sure, right? These are the Bible preachers of the day. And he asks them, hey, where will he be born? And they know the answer, right? They don't need to meet about it. They don't need to make sure we're all on the same page. What do you think? They don't need to go find a scroll. They answer him. Look at verse five. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and they quote Micah 5, 2, which again, another Messianic prophet coming to fulfillment in Jesus. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And here's what's crazy about that. We don't hear from them again. Right, we don't hear from the chief priests and scribes again. I think this might even be harder to wrap our minds around than whatever it was, that star or that light that brought them from Jerusalem, that these men who knew the word of God well enough to know where the Messiah would be born, they answer the question and they go about their business as usual, completely indifferent to the word of God, that a group of people big enough to catch the attention of the king rolls into town saying, hey, we saw the star, where's the Messiah gonna be born? And they answer it and they do nothing about it completely indifferent to God and his word. So this may not seem like much, but we can't afford to miss this because here's what this means. It is possible for you to know the word of God in your mind, but to completely lock it out of your heart. Right? It's possible for you to be an expert on the pages of scripture, but to know all the answers of God, but to be completely disinterested in actually knowing who he is. And man, I think some of us need to pay attention here that the, the feeling in us right now that's uncomfortable, it might just be the Holy Spirit of God drawing you to repent. That you know the word, or at least part of it, but you are indifferent to line your life up in obedience to it. And if you need help here, you're not sure what I'm talking about, I'm talking about those places in your life where you hit that fork in the road where you go, I know God says go this way, but I'm doing what I want. That space in your life where I go, hey, God says it's better for me if I do this. I'm not talking about the things that you don't know that are in here because they are there, me too. I'm talking about the places in our lives where we hit the spot that says God says do this to be obedient and we go, no thanks. And in that moment, we're like the priests and the scribes and we know the answer to what's gonna bring us joy and satisfaction in this world. We know that only God deserves our worship but we refuse to give it to him. And on the other hand, when we look at the Magi, we see that genuine worship isn't indifferent to the word of God, but rather it's willing to be obedient, even when it costs something. But this runs contrary to the priests and scribes and what they're doing. So if we think about this Magi story, somehow they knew the promise of God, that there's gonna be a star and there's gonna be a Messiah, and the star is the sign of the Messiah coming. That's it, that's all we know. 
They weren't experts on the prophets. They weren't even Jewish, right? They're these Babylonian magicians. But what do they do when they see the star? They follow it. What do they do when they, what they've heard to be true about the word of God, and they see it happening, they go right after it. They travel 800 miles east to Jerusalem, and they roll into the city asking the question, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Again, we have to read this with our imagination, that what would this have been like for them? This journey, 800 miles for us is like a couple hundred bucks and two and a half hour flight from Atlanta to Dallas, right? That's all it takes. But for them, this would have taken months. It would have been incredibly costly, it would have been dangerous, and it would have been super uncomfortable. Like how many of you like camping? People, not me, all right? Make all the assessments about my personal character, my manliness, or whatever, okay? I don't like camping. I don't go to the mountains, I go to the beach, and when I go, I ain't camping, all right? Too sandy. (laughs) But what I'm talking about here is not like what you do in an RV, that ain't camping. That's four-star hotels on wheels, okay? I'm not talking about tent camping in a campground with Wi-Fi and showers, okay? We're talking about off-the-grid, backwoods camping where every single day you have to set up camp and tear down camp, and in between that, you have to hike 15 or 20 miles, and you have to wake up and do it every single day for three months to get to Jerusalem, and that's what they do. Guys, genuine worship is a willingness to be obedient to God even when it costs you something. Even when it costs a lot. And it's not afraid of what it might lose. Look at verse seven. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he's trying to figure out when do they see it. And he sent them, the the wise men, to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So what we find out from the rest of the story is that Herod isn't interested in worshiping Jesus at all. What he's doing is actually scheming to hold on to what's most valuable to him, that he is operating out of fear. So what we read earlier is that this, the news of a Messiah was terrifying to, to Herod, and so he starts scrambling, right? All of a sudden, he's trying to figure out a plan of how he can hold on to his power and hold on to his authority, and he'd do anything to keep it, right? Including killing a bunch of babies, which we're gonna read that next week. It's a Merry Christmas story there. He'll do anything he can to make sure that people worship him instead of worshiping Jesus. And I think we do this too. Not the part about the babies, but I think oftentimes what motivates us to do the things we do is a fear of what it's gonna cost us. What motivates us to go to work or motivates us to love our wives or motivates us to whatever, to do the things we do is a fear of what's gonna happen if we don't, a fear of what might lose, what we might lose. And as long as fear is what's motivating us, it will prevent us from genuinely worshiping God. Look at verse nine, after listening to the king, these wise men, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. How different is the Magi's response to Jesus from Herod? Right, that Herod is scrambling, doing everything he can to make sure he doesn't lose what's valuable to them. And then verse 11 says, the wise men show up and they open their treasures to him. And they offer gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And Herod is fighting to hold on to his treasure while the wise men willingly give theirs away. Not in an attempt to earn the favor of God, but because they've found a treasure that's more valuable 
that somehow for them it, it is more satisfying to offer their gifts to Jesus than to keep them for themselves. And I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about some trite, it's better to give than to receive. I'm talking about an actual exchange that says this is not a loss for me because I get him. I give my gifts to him because I get something that's of surpassing worth. This is worship. Right? It isn't afraid of what it might lose because it's fueled by faith. Look again at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and worship him. And so notice it says they see the child and not the baby. All right, so I'm gonna completely blow up your manger scenes right here, okay? Not only were there not three wise men, these guys never made it to the manger. So you need to go home this afternoon and you get your nativity and you take it and you take the three wise men, you go buy a whole bunch more, it should be on sale right now, and you put them on the other side of the room, okay? Because they're not at the manger. The Bible said we don't know when they got there, but, the, but it says they went into the house where Jesus was. Later in chapter two, we find out that this attempt from Herod to get rid of his opposition, he plots to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, and from his information, he, he kills every male child that's two years old or younger. So based on his information, not only was Jesus not a baby, but he could have been two years old. He might have been 18 months old, and still, verse 11 says, when they see him, this 18-month-old, when they show up, when the star is there, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy, then they go into the house, and they see Mary, and they see this two-year-old, this toddler, and they fall down and worship him. And so on this side of the cross, we look back at that like it's a no-brainer, right? On this side of the resurrection, we look back and go, of course that's Jesus. I'd be right there with him. I'd be on my face. I'd be giving him everything I have, but would you? It's not a no-brainer for these guys. It was a moment-by-moment -moment act of faith. Worshiping God is fueled by faith. You cannot tell me, it's a little bit of a conjecture, but you can't tell me that at some point on this three-month journey or however long it took them to get from where they were to Jerusalem, that at some point over the course of that, because it, whether it was thunderstorm or, or cold or whatever, that somebody didn't look to somebody else and go, what are we doing? Right? You can't tell me at some point that their faith wasn't shaky a little bit, or then they doubted a little bit, going, are we sure about this? And here's the point, man. The life that worshiped Jesus is a life that's fueled by faith. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you're never supposed to doubt or that you're supposed to have it all together. And in fact, I think the Bible, it's easier to make an argument from the scriptures that it's the opposite, that you're never gonna have it together, and that's why we need Jesus that's why we celebrate Advent. That's why we gather in here on Sunday mornings that we can remember who he is and what he's done. Remember that he's the savior and it's not up to us to perform, but we can rest in the performance of Christ that counts for us. And then here's the last one. Look again at verse nine. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, when it went before them until it came to rest somehow over the place where the child was, where Jesus was, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so verse 10, Matthew writes it in such a way, it's meant to catch your attention. Right, they didn't just rejoice. They didn't just rejoice exceedingly, but what do they do? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Four times in 11 words, Matthew says, the wise men rejoice. And the point is, yes, worshiping Jesus will absolutely be costly. Yes, there will be times where you're gonna have to rely on your faith, but worshiping God, a genuine biblical worship of God, is inseparably linked to joy. Because I can promise you, in that moment, the Magi did not care what the journey cost them. They didn't care how long it was, how tiring it was, how cold they were, how wet they were. 
But in that moment, they were sure of something they hoped for to be true all along, that God is a God who keeps his promises, that this is the one who's come to set us free, to set the captives free. In that moment, they had no more doubts. You see, so many of us, we're hesitant to fully offer our worship to Jesus because we think that this world might have something else to bring us that he can This is what's underneath this mentality that a lot of us have walked in that says, hey, I'm gonna get serious about Jesus, I'm gonna get serious about church after college. I'm gonna get serious about following Christ, I'm gonna really lay my, my yes down with him after I have a little bit of fun first, or after I get married, or after I have kids, whatever it might be. And what that says that we believe about Jesus is that ultimately he lacks the ability to provide a sense of joy and satisfaction that this world can give us. I want what he brings, but once I've had this first. That means you're not worshiping him at all. We think we know better what's gonna satisfy the longings of our heart than God does. We think that God is holding out on us, but it is the opposite. John 10, verse 10 says this, it'll be on the screen. Jesus says to his disciples, the thief, the enemy, the serpent that we read about in in Genesis three, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The point is God isn't trying to rob you of anything. And the whole reason that Jesus came was to set you free from a life of wondering, will I ever find what I'm looking for? Will I ever find the the life that he said is this fullness of life that he came to get us to the place where we joyfully open our hands to everything that matters to us? so that we can find the treasure of surpassing worth. That doesn't mean that those things don't matter, it's just that compared to him, there is not one, because he's better. He came to set us free from clinging to this thing or that thing, hoping that maybe this is it, that's finally gonna satisfy me. Maybe it's this relationship. Maybe it's this job or this house or this car or whatever it might be, maybe that will finally bring me the sense of joy that I've been looking for my whole life. All the while we get there and we're left empty-handed and more disappointed than we were when we came. Jesus came to set us free from that. And what he's saying in John 10 and what Matthew is hinting at here in chapter two is don't believe the lie. That more or a different version of something you already have is not going to satisfy you. That's the thief, right? That's him trying to steal from you, trying to kill you and to destroy you. So quit playing with it because Jesus came to give you life and give it to you abundantly. If you have another translation, that that text says to give you life to the full, overflowing joy in life regardless of your circumstances because you have what can never be taken from you. And so I'm set free to love my my wife in a way that I can't love her right now because Jesus is my treasure. So I get to go all in on her because I know that what's my ultimate treasure can't be taken from me. And the same thing is true about my kids and this ministry and everything, that Jesus would be the treasure of surpassing worth because he came to give us life abundantly. This means that you can afford to go all in on Jesus because he will not disappoint you in the end. Like these magi, they show up. It didn't matter how long the journey was, it didn't matter how hard the journey was, this is what it means to follow Jesus, that there will be a day when he comes back to make all things new or then when we see him, there will be no more pain, no more weeping, no more crying anymore because the former things has passed away and on that day you won't wish that you held out a little bit for that promotion, or that you sacrificed following after Jesus because you wanted to have a little bit more fun in college, on that day you will wish that you cashed all your chips in on Jesus because in that moment you know that he is a God who keeps his promises. He's better and he's enough because he deserves our worship. 
Jesus won't be disappointing to you in the end. There is a scenario, and I'll wrap up here, there is a scenario that Jesus will be disappointing to you. And that's if you're trying to use him to get the thing you really want. Right, if I, if I go after Jesus, then maybe I'll get this, right? Maybe I'll have, find the satisfaction outside of him. And what that reveals is that he doesn't really have your worship. What has your worship is the thing that you're using him to get. And that's the version of Christianity that you're walking in. You will be perpetually disappointed. And Jesus goes, hey, that's the lie, don't believe it. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I want you to hear this in 1 Peter and then we'll be done. 1 Peter verse eight, he touches on this so well. He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That following Jesus is fueled by faith. It will at times be costly, but it is inseparably linked to a fullness of joy, an inexpressible joy, Peter says. The point is God keeps his promises. He alone deserves our worship and you don't need to hedge your bets because Jesus isn't trying to rob you of anything. He's trying to invite you into a fullness of life. That's what we remember together in Advent. We look back at the first coming of Christ and we look forward together in eager hope and longing for the return of Christ. Let me pray for us. God, as we said, there's any number of things and people that are calling us for our worship, and if we are honest, every single one of us are tempted to offer ourselves to them. My hope and prayer, God, is that in this moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to see Jesus as he really is, that we would find him to be worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship, and God, we need your help with that. We need your help with that, so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that as we sing and respond, that you would give us the capacity to respond in worship and spirit and truth, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.